George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories you know, we every haven't damn We have done a roundup week. of other podcasts about opera late, lately. Uh, we, know mean, we, we love Aria Code, but there are other shows out there. There's like Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, or Opera, Drugs, and Rock, is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but there are other people out there. So we don't know if, if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week. These are other really great yeah. opera podcasts for me to poop on. <laughs> hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks. Or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things look you know? 20 bucks that's enough to l- buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus we could share the mask yeah that is not gonna work <laughs> yes right. the Can- mask is not even gonna work we're all doomed the olympics are canceled thank mm. you matt cummings look don't think you can give oh yes you can simply review us on apple podcasts share our facebook posts or just retweet okay. us and tell people hey i like this podcast and that guy oliver here he's Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show. That's normally live, but just a podcast for now about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via Zoom to co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, on this episode, we continue spring training for your ears with part two of our look at Britain's comic masterpiece, Albert Herring. But first... A singer described by Opera News as a, quote, true stage animal. Our team goes inside the huddle with bass baritone Zachary James to talk about starring in Philip Glass's Akhenaten, being a queer villain in Britain's Billy Budd, and a breakthrough role in the Addams Family musical. Then Two Minute Drill, you knew it was coming, the Zoom opera. And, of course, you can give us your hot take on all the latest Opera News stories Email operaboxscore at gmail.com. Tweet us at operaboxscore. Post on our Facebook page. Plus, we're continuing to document all things opera in this time of corona. Are you an employee of the opera world whose work has been affected by COVID-19? We want to hear from you. How are you coping? What does work look like right now? Just record a voice memo, 30 to 60 seconds. Send it to operaboxscore at gmail.com. We just might include it on our next show. we got a great show for you tonight. One day we will be back live on WNUR, but we don't give up. We don't quit. We're going to keep this show going as a pod as long as it takes. The uh, NFL draft is still going to take place on April 23rd. Yes, the Bears are still going to find a way to blow that, I'm sure. Uh, Also here in Chicago, for the Bulls, both John Paxson and Gar Foreman the VP and the GM, respectively, have been gotten rid of. I wonder if this will actually make the Bulls competitive moving forward. I certainly hope it does. Uh, and Ashley says that the XFL 
is now officially history as well. This is the second time the XFL has come back. It, it feels like once was enough for the XFL. Uh, there's no plans for it to come back for the 2021 season. Uh, it's owned by Vince McMahon of the WWE Wrestling, which is also one of the few sports happening right now. The XFL, I'll just put it like this. If you remember the player from the first edition of the XFL called He Hate Me, I want you to write to me at operaboxscore@gmail.com and let me know if you recognize that name. All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Zachary James has been having a benchmark season that included his debut at the Met, reprising his role in the Olivier Award-winning production of Philip Glass's Akhenaten, which was broadcast in HD, a scene-stealing turn as the chef in Opera Philadelphia's production of Prokofiev's Love for Three Oranges. He was identified as an innovative industry leader named as an official ambassador for Opera America. March of this year, he was on the cusp of the world premiere of the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane at Minnesota Opera. Ashley, Oliver, Weston, and Matt were joined by Zachary James on Zoom. They begin their conversation discussing the speaking role of Amenhotep III in Akhenaten and what it was like to work with director Fella McDermott. Before you join them in that interview, here's an excerpt of Zachary James as John Claggart from the Des Moines Metro Opera's Emmy Award-winning broadcast of Billy Budd. to its arms upon the indomitable you in my power and I will destroy you I will destroy you I was cast the original ENO production that we did in 2016, which has gone on to the Met in LA Opera, I was cast about a week before rehearsal started. Um, they didn't know who they wanted to play this role. Phelan McDermott, the director, saw it as a role that would be on stage the entire time, and he wanted like a serious Shakespearean actor. And um, he had asked like all these celebrities, and they were all saying no because no celebrity is going to be like, oh yeah, I want to do a three hour Philip Glass opera where I never leave the stage. <laughs> so yeah. And I think he, the last person he asked was Tilda Swinton. Oh and uh, <laughs> like the craziest people he told me. And actually, he only I think, recently I think told you're me. the Tilda Swinton of opera, actually. <laughs> I am flattered. I was just about to say, we could have been talking to Tilda Swinton right now. I think we so. found our episode title like <laughs> right off the bat. This is a new record. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, so, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, and because it was a co-production between English National Opera and L.A. Opera, L.A. was especially invested in this idea of having a celebrity because L.A., you know, so. And it was going to L.A. six months later. Um so Phelan, you know, we worked together on another glass opera called The Perfect American, which mm -hmm. we premiered in Madrid and did it in London and Brisbane as well. But we went back to Broadway days. We met doing The Addams Family together on Broadway. So um, we had this long relationship. I know his vocabulary and we work 
really well together. It's a wonderful match. We and, spoke to uh, Annie Rosen a couple months ago, and she described a little bit about the process of rehearsing that show and all like the body work that you guys did. And yeah. that seems like so much you're up your alley. But can you talk a little it's, bit about that? Because uh, yeah. it's so unusual for opera singers to get those experiences. It is. And, and it's been, um, you know, his process is the same every show he does. So we started doing this work together in 2009 um, on The Adams Family. So I've been through this entire process so many times now on, I guess, eight production processes. Um, but it's it's all based in Michael Chekhov work. Um, and then beyond that, there's this um, theory of open space that the director is keeping time and space and that the he always kind of says director in quotes, uh, these air quotes, um, because he doesn't think that he's supposed to be there telling us exactly what to do. He's there keeping time and space and guiding the process. Um, I've witnessed actors walk up to him and say, what should I do in this scene? How should I feel? And he says, well, how would I know? <laughs> I like, love that answer. <laughs> I, um, I happen to uh, be a bit of a, uh, um, I act as well, and I, I specialize in Michael Chekhov technique. I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about that for maybe our listeners who don't know what those words mean. <laughs> yeah. Let's go in. Um, so there's these movement qualities, uh, molding, mm-hmm. floating, flying, radiating. Yeah. And um, basically in the glass world, what we're primarily doing is molding and then Anytime you're on stage, you're radiating. So you're sending out all of your energy to every seat in the house at all times. And it's exhausting. And then um, taking that practice and making it sustainable. So you're doing it in an economic way. Um, and so, I mean, if, for those that saw Akhenaten, you saw we're moving across space very slowly and resisting uh, space, basically. Um, and that kind of really seems to match up with the glass world. Um, when we did the Adams family together, I was Lurch and I was primarily molding in this movement. Right. There were other characters who were existing in a different kind of reality. So they weren't, we weren't all in that same vocabulary together. Um, so I would say uh, when it works, it really, really works. And it works really well for glass. Uh, that production of Satyagraha, the production of Perfect American we did, we used all these same movement qualities and it was just spot on for glass because glass is suspending time and space to begin with you know when it works you wake up at the end and it's like you've woken up from a trance Um, and also whenever i work with uh michael chegoff technique i'm always struck by uh, how um how much of an ensemble feel it is uh it's very uh and i feel like i picked up on this when i was watching interviews with you, um, not just you, but with other cast members of Akhenaten as well, there there was this sort of like camaraderie in the cast that felt a little bit unusual for an opera, at least on the scale of the Mets. Absolutely. At all? Yeah. yeah, and, you know, one of the big things we do is we try to not ever stop making eye contact with, with anyone mm. at any point. And, and you watch so many operas and it's like, no one's making eye contact at all. They're just staring at a conductor. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're really, really just trying to connect to each other and always be seeing something or feeling something or hearing something or a combination to stay active and present. And, you know, for me, if I were to think about the entire journey of that opera and, and what I had to get through in the night, I would not be able to do it. But if I just stay present, because I'm on stage, like almost the entire time, never really 
getting a significant break. And then when I'm off stage, I'm doing a costume change, you know. Um, but if I thought about the entire arc of the evening, it would it would feel exhausting. But staying present in it and always being aware and connecting with other people makes it possible to kind of do what we did. It's total ensemble building. And a lot of what the show is came out of improv exercises mm -hmm. within this framework of these checkoff movement qualities and this idea of open space. Um, so there's a lot of other rules within it. Um, there's we talk about the the sisters, which are uh, mm -hmm. Beauty form ease. Uh, you're speaking my language right now. <laughs> but it works so well in opera when it works, you know. Um, like Phelan's production of Cozy at the Met was criticized a lot. And then a lot of people thought it was absolutely delightful. But, um, and, you know, the Adams family was kind of an enormous flop uh, critically, but a huge box office hit. Um, so that's kind of why I say when it works, it works. And when it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, but I've, I've been in so many processes with him now. And I have to say, Akhenaten is the only one where every single person involved bought into the process fully. And that mm. really is magic. When you have one person who is, am I allowed to curse on the show? Yes. When we're in podcast, yes. When we're on the radio, we have to yeah. take it now, but yeah. Cool. When you have somebody that's like, oh, fuck this, this is bullshit. It, it doesn't work. And yeah. it, it breaks the mold. And, um, you know, when we were doing The Addams Family, I won't name names, but a huge star of the show on day three of rehearsal, he was like, fuck this, call me when you're ready to stage the fucking show. And he slammed the door and left for three days. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. And so, and everyone else was like, what? We're having the best time. This is so amazing and revolutionary. But, you know, when when someone isn't buying into it or isn't willing, and we kind of had that experience with The Perfect American as well. There was one particular person who just like refused to buy into it. But then you would see glimmers of it working in their work when they would just you know be vulnerable and let their guard drop and it would be amazing and magical but then it would go away because you know they they weren't willing it was to angela Gergiu, right sorry it was angela Gergiu. <laughs> come on Ange. no names <laughs> so uh, i'm glad we're actually talking about some of these uh, extra musical things um and i would love to just maybe for you to trace a little bit of your path uh, to opera because it seems like you're not, you know, the standard, oh, I did conservatory and I did my master's and I did my doctorate and then whatever, I auditioned for Santa Fe, you know? Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and and that's hard sometimes and then other times I'm just so grateful. Um, so I got a musical theater degree, so, you know, I spent my time studying acting and, and movement and dance in equal measures to music. Um, and you know, musical theater, you go into these auditions and sometimes they're like, great, can you just do that again? And just like, don't sing at all, just speak it on pitch, you know? <laughs> like, they're so not about <laughs> what what we're, you know, devoting time to in opera. Um, but uh, I kind of got a taste of opera while I was studying musical theater because my voice teacher just insisted that there might be a place for me in opera and that I should study classically with her a bit. Um, and that was reinforced when I, I actually got my first job in musical theater. I did a summer stock season and we were doing all these shows like Joseph and Footloose and Oklahoma and Fiddler. And some of them were great and some of them felt terrible, um, particularly Footloose. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> this is terrible. Like, what a joke, you know, is how it felt in my heart. And I have a strong classical music background. My dad is a um, full-time music teacher. So I grew up with music in the house, like round the clock. And he put me on piano when I was four. And, you know, I grew up like playing Chopin and Beethoven. And so 
Um, I was always attracted to more sophisticated music, I guess, and that's where opera, when the seed was planted, it took hold pretty quickly. But um, I dabbled a bit after I graduated with that musical theater degree from Ithaca College. I um, I went and did a few young artist programs in opera, and I realized quickly, like I knew how to be on stage, and I knew how to you know fake it in a lot of ways, but I was missing a lot of skills that my peers had, diction training, you know and all these things. And I was like, sure, yeah, put me in a costume and I will like sell it, but I do not know what you're talking about in any other arena. <laughs> and so um, it was both encouraging in some ways and discouraging in other ways, but um, someone uh, I was working with was like, you know, you really don't belong in opera the way that a lot of your peers do. It's not like solidly who you are and you might want to just move to New York and audition for Broadway and see what happens. And so I moved to New York like a week later and <clears throat> six months later, I got my first Broadway show, like total luck. Um, but you know, of the three Broadway shows I did, it was all kind of based in classical music. Like um, my first show was called Quorum Boy and it was a choir on stage singing excerpts from Handel's Messiah as the background music for the play. And then I did South Pacific at Lincoln Center. And then even in the Adams Family, you know, the role was written for me uh, but Andrew Lippa wanted to kind of spoof Verdi in in my song, and he always called it an aria, you know. So it's like, even though I was doing musical theater, I really couldn't get away from my my classical roots, and then this these opera seeds that were taking hold. So, but it was when the Adams Family closed. Um, Phelan McDermott, the director, he hooked me up with Philip Glass, and it was the perfect American. He said, you know, we're doing this opera. We need this uh, tall person to play robot Abraham Lincoln. There's specialized movement and dance. Like, would you audition for Philip Glass? And I was like, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> Dream role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I was a huge Glass fan. Like, I saw Satyagraha at the Met, and it blew my mind. And that was before I had even met Phelan. So when I walked into rehearsal for The Adams Family, I, like, lost my mind. And was like, oh, my God, I saw Satyagraha. It changed my life. And, you know, I was, like, more excited about meeting him because of seeing that work than I was the stars in the show who, you know, were also really big deals and I looked up to them, but um, he really made an impression on me. So when he asked me to audition for Philip, I was geeking out and um, auditioned for Philip at his house on the Lower East Side and like sang acapella for him in his living room. And then he... Amazing. Yeah. And he showed me out and was like, great, they're going to love you in Madrid. And I was like, did you just hire me on the spot? <laughs> okay, Philip Glass. So? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, and really it's been uh, opera kind of full-time ever since then. Um, so that was just 2012 when I got into opera, you know, as a, as a, I guess, a principal artist at a larger scale. And, um, but I had to learn a lot of things, you know, that first gig, I was like, oh, okay, I'm singing over an orchestra with no microphone for the first time in my life. Uh, okay, hold on. <laughs> you know, it was totally nuts. And, um, but I had great colleagues. Janice Kelly was so incredible to me. She pulled me aside and would say, hey, if you want, I'll take you into this studio and I'll just teach you a couple things really quick. And she just taught me like how to engage my ribs the way that you need to, to sing over an orchestra, little things, you know, people were watching out for me, but. And now yeah, you are an opera America ambassador. And, hey. and I'm sorry, <laughs> I forgot to address you by your full title ambassador. James. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ambassador James. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of going to use that opportunity to pivot to Billy Budd because yeah. you're talking about 
you know, having this music theater background and maybe having to learn these extra things as you entered into the arena of opera. And then you end up starring in a show like Billy Budd. And we are talking about Britain on the show right now and how difficult singing Benjamin Britain is and how difficult it's get, it is to get into your ear. And, you know, the the real musician skills you need to pull off music like that. What was it like for you to learn uh, such a big role, such an important role in one of the Ooh. most you know, important operas in the canon? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I don't think I've ever been more excited than getting that job if, to play that role. That was a dream role of mine. I saw James Morris do it, you know, and um, I was so excited and so intimidated at the same time. And I knew it was something I wanted to tackle, but I thought it would come much later. Um, how old was I? I was like, I was 35, you know, it's a little, a little young to play John Clagger, but Des Moines, where it's a 500 seat audience, um, we still have that huge orchestra. Um, it was really hard to learn. I have to say, um, the music staff at Des Moines really invested deeply in me when I got there and made sure I was comfortable. And it's a unique situation there because the, um, you know, the orchestra is underneath the stage. There's a hole in the middle of the stage. You're playing around the orchestra pit. You can't really see the conductor at all times. And, you know, I've done a lot of shows there now, so I've learned how to kind of stage myself to do these like fancy three-point turns to catch the conductor when I need to. But it's a while. You've learned, you've learned how to not fall into the orchestra pit, which but is the true. main thing. That's true. But you do kind of have to be fearless there. It, um, it's really crazy. And the extra thing that happens there often and what happened with Billy, but was we were filming it for Iowa Public Television. So it's like, we're doing an opera, we're doing a Britain opera, which is really hard. We can't see the conductor and there's like 20 cameras in our faces doing close-ups. So it needs to be like film, realism, acting. Like we need to be serving Meryl Streep at all times while singing this. Um, so, you know, it was crazy, but I, I went through the entire process very intimidated and feeling very underwhelmed with myself, but also kind of like grasping onto what I, what I always thought were my strengths. So making eye contact with my colleagues and just like going in on backstory and, um, through the process, the voice kind of rose to match that work. And it was at Zitz Probe where I finally was like, oh, wow, I'm actually singing this really well. And people responded really positively to it. And and I realized I that I may be doing something special. And uh, the critical response to it was so overwhelming. And um, I don't, I don't, like you kind of dream of getting reviews like that and, and probably never will. And I, I don't think, you know, I was you know. reading those reviews today and they made me emotional just thinking about <laughs> seriously. And like, I, I mean, I don't mean to get gushy here, but like thinking about being a homosexual man and exactly. playing a role like that, that has so much anger and self-hatred and being able yeah. to you know, do that knowing whatever the queer history, knowing Britain, knowing what his operas generally are about and being able to perform that for, you know, opera audiences. I don't know what Des Moines is like. I've never been there, but you know, generally opera audiences skew conservative and older and to be able yeah. to put yourself out there and to get that feedback. 
I don't know. Like I, I wish that I was younger and that I had you to look up to when I was coming through the ranks as trying to become a singer because I didn't have people like you to look up to. And I'm older than you, but I feel like there's probably, you know, a generation of young singers, young baritones, young tenors, whatever, countertenors, who saw that and were probably very profoundly touched. So oh, thanks. Yeah, and I just... Yeah. I feel that and, uh, and, and receive that response. And, um, and it was very meaningful to play John Claggart as a actual gay man, like in, in real life and not to do it in this like lascivious, lustful way on stage, but to actually carry out what it is in reality. And for me, it was like looking back and realizing the emotional world of where that guy's living is like the same as me being in middle school in the locker room and someone walking by and calling me faggot. And I was like, why are you calling me that in my head? Why are you calling me that? What does that mean? What do you see in me that makes you call me that? You know, and what is my tell? <laughs> I'm trying so yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying so hard, <laughs> but I didn't even know, you know, and, and when you look at John Claggart, it's like, he doesn't really know what he is, but he knows what he's feeling. And that's exactly what it is. And going through the experience, mostly in middle school and high school of having exactly those feelings and not knowing what it meant for me, both in the present and the future and, and, and how it would shape my life and then trying really hard to be something else and that miserably failing, you know? Yeah. It's like really easy to tap into that character. And, um, and it was really special to have a director like Christine McIntyre, who is willing to go there and make it real because it's either in the productions I've seen, it's either not addressed at all or it's like porn. Yeah. And neither of those things are helpful to us as we're trying to, you know, be um, identified and have stories about us, you know, on stage. But that so. said, now you are like this wildflower. And I don't know, I feel like you're doing so much, at least that I know of in the past two years that's very sort of explicit and very queer. And um, it seems deliberate. I mean, is it deliberate? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm kind of just being myself and finding where that's acceptable and sometimes making my own opportunities for that. Like this, I did this uh, Das Rheinstone. Yes, this, like, I know. But... <laughs> I for saw less. those photos. <laughs> yep, they were amazing. <laughs> But I was like, I don't know where that came from. I just like have these instincts to do weird stuff and then I do it. So, um, but to me, I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't Votan have like a rhinestone eye patch and like not wear much? That's my version of, <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, as I got away from contemporary opera and started to flesh out my resume, which my agent was like, listen, you have to diversify and start doing traditional canon repertoire if you want a career. And and we started knocking things off. I did Nabucco and uh, Rheingold and, you know, all these things and the Puccini and the Mozart and the Verdi and, the, you know, I just started knocking them all off. And, and I realized it wasn't just the music. It was being stuck in these traditional productions sometimes where it feels so incredibly claustrophobic to be forced to just stand still and wear some old stodgy costume and yeah. not tell a story. It's like, what are we doing here? This is a nail in the coffin of opera. Why are we doing this? Um, so when I started doing these traditional things, I just found myself constantly fantasizing about kind of breaking them and doing them in kind of more irreverent ways. So I did this. <laughs> 
Das Rhinestone, you know, in the middle of Hanukkah at a burlesque club in New York. And I was like, I think this is how it should be done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I don't know. Go, go I, to zachjames.com like, and you will see what we're talking about. <laughs> but also having musical theater roots, like in the Broadway world, they have every year, they have this event called Broadway Bears, where like every yep. performer on Broadway takes their clothes off as a fundraiser for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And because it's they know fun. their audience. Yeah, yeah. And people love it and it raises so much money. And so I've never thought of like, taking my clothes off as like a crazy thing you know so um and that's why when we did when we did late night snacks in opera philly they sent out this list of things that were acceptable to do in the venue and nudity was like number one i was like well of course i'll sing sally bulls in a sequin thong why wouldn't i you know <laughs> like i don't know where that idea came from i just did it and didn't really think about it till after the fact um but it's actually impactful course, because you are Six six, and your body, no matter and most of your views comment on your stature, you know, and so your yeah, your yeah, body yeah. is just something that everybody notices immediately when you're on stage, you know, right? So right. to be like, here it is, <laughs> yeah, totally. And honestly, that was the bulk of my training in my musical theater degree was my professors trying to get me to own my physical presence and use it to my advantage because as a tall kid who's like just come out of the closet you don't want to be seen you want to hide like right. I spent you know my my teen years <clears throat> with my shoulders at my ears because I didn't want to be seen um but if you're going to be on stage you're going to be seen so you just got to like own everything you have and and go there well I, I hope that you know people listening if we have young audience members I don't know if they're impressionable but if they just learn to embrace themselves and to accept themselves I'm totally not into my body. I've, I'm always, I'm still hating it. I got to work that out with my, with my therapist, you know, but seeing you out there um, and in your Instagram and in everything you do, it's like, you just seem so comfortable. And um, yeah, I, I don't know if you had to work on that. I mean, you said you have to work on that. So I, I need to do that work, you know? Yeah. Well, and sometimes I think, um, sometimes I think you're, I'm compensating for, for not feeling great about myself sometimes, you know, and in a way, putting it out there helps and um but it also helps other people and i get a lot of a lot of honestly a, like the adams family is the most performed uh high school musical in the country like six years in a row now so these kids are constantly connecting to me and saying you know what it means to them to see me doing whatever i'm doing and um it ranges from like oh i'm in high school and i had this dream and i see that you had a dream too and you're achieving it to you know, LGBTQ issues, there's a whole range of things. So I think it's important to really be yourself and know if you're doing that authentically and with a good and open heart, you can help people, you know, because you are being watched whether you know it or not. Well, and I also think that the the work, as you as you put it, Oliver, and I think sort of the more macro version of the the work that you're doing in in the in the comfort with yourself and with your instrument, both your vocal and your physical, is that it's it's not like you do the work once and then you're fine forever. It's a it's a lifelong, constant process that needs constant check-ins and validations and verifications. So I think it's that much more important that you go through those exercises where you do things like late night snacks, even if you're not feeling great about yourself, because it's like, no, you need to go back and you need to remind yourself. It's, it's that check-in that you need, that work you need to do to keep going. 
So all of you, you can use, there's still time to do the work, my dear. We can, we can arrange our own opera box score late night snack uh, and we'll. Uh, during the quarantine, I'm getting, just getting bigger and bigger. So I might need a gear to get caught up again. Listen, if what we need to get through this is carbohydrates, I think that's perfectly acceptable. So speaking of yeah. the quarantine, Ambassador James, um, I would love to just hear how you're coping with the loss of opportunities, um, how you're strategizing your coming season. Things are getting shuffled, I'm sure. Uh, and this is a yeah. conversation a lot of people are having with their managers and with opera companies. And I just want to know where you're at. Yeah, listen, it's heartbreaking. It's It's been um, stages of grief, classic stages of grief. And, you know, the first week, you know, we were sent home from a world premiere in Minnesota that we were so in love with and we were 10 days out from opening, you know, so it was absolutely devastating and heartbreaking. And, and it was like on a personal level. And then you look around and you see absolutely everyone lost their jobs overnight. And then two days later, it was like, oh, and now the entire restaurant industry has lost their jobs. And then people are messaging me and saying like, oh, I'm a massage therapist. I lost my job too, obviously. And you realize that we're all so connected and we're all in a state of grief right now. Um, so it was an industry thing. And then it was like looking around and seeing, no, it's not just our industry. And then it was like 10 days later, I had a friend in ICU in New York and it mm -hmm. was like, you know, he said goodbye to me mm -hmm. and, uh, he made it home three days later, but that's when it hit really hard when it became really personal. And it's like, oh no, people I know have this and people I know are fighting for their lives right now. And then, you know, beyond that, my boyfriend works in a pathology lab at University of Pennsylvania Hospital. So he's dealing with it on a regular basis. And his job is dangerous anyway. He does autopsies and is constantly dealing with infectious disease. But it's been, um, it's been really hard and um, trying to stay positive, but it's definitely a one day at a time thing. And it's, um, it's a very emotional experience. Um, I haven't really felt that driven to create and... I've sung a few times. I've been doing like some karaoke videos for my Instagram and Facebook. I did like somewhere over the rainbow and like some easy, like I want to sing like in very soft, simple ways. Like I don't want to blast out operate now. It doesn't feel You're not feeling right. Nabucco right now. Sorry. You're not feeling Nabucco right now. Not really. No, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, let's just sing like simply and softly and um, reverently, you know? So um yeah but it's hard um looking ahead you know i've lost i guess like six gigs now kind of waiting for the the summer gig to fall as we saw opera theater st louis canceled yesterday and opera saratoga today and lincoln center festivals are all done so i think we all know it's coming this summer and that is it's just not safe to congregate yet um so certainly hoping for a reboot by the fall but it's just gonna be I think one day at a time for, for a lot of things. Um, you know, I have some really exciting stuff coming up in the next few years. And, um, but I've always felt, and this kind of happens with, um, with Akhenaten, honestly, um, kind of finished my, my dreams. You know, I always, my final dream was just to do something big at the Met and yeah, I wasn't singing, but like I was on stage for three hours helping carry a show that is very meaningful to me. So you know, and I got to be on like some sitcoms, I got to do a Broadway show. So in a lot of ways, I felt like I've ticked off like all my big dreams. And now I'm just like, oh, well, what's next? Uh, whatever. I'm happy with what I've accomplished. And I just want to be of service and 
I hope it means that I continue to be of service to music and to art. And it's been my lifelong devotion, but you know, I'm also open to the possibilities that we might have to be in service in other ways right now. And we just don't know. So. Hmm. But you do have a really cool recital that's planned in at Carnegie hall in November. I do, I do. <laughs> Actually, when, um, when that press release came out, we were so excited to hear that. I was excited to hear that, and I'd love to come hear it. But maybe you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is something I've been um, devoted to ever since um, starting and running an opera. I ran Opera Ithaca for a number of years, and um, before that was doing some programming in New York City under the name Metropolis Opera Project. And um, so, and what I'm talking about is the thing that I've been devoted for years is um, the voice of female composers. And at Opera Ithaca, we were programming a work written by a woman every season. And I think at the time we were the only opera company doing that. And it was a really important part of our mission. Um, so I have just all these wonderful friends I've worked with. And um, I always love this idea of kind of gathering up your favorite people and putting something on. And so I reached out to, well, I kind of, to step back, I had a professional loss where something big was dangled and it, I was ghosted, like totally ghosted. <laughs> um, and I was devastated. And I just went back to the drawing board and was like, ah, this is one of those moments where I need to make my own opportunity and fill in, fill in the gaps. And um, so, yeah, I called up a bunch of composers, you know, Missy Mazzoli and uh, Paolo Pristini, who I've been working with, and... Kristen Hebner and Bonnie Montgomery and uh, yeah <laughs> and I just said like do you want to you know put on this crazy Carnegie Hall recital of all female composers and just like if you want to write something new amazing but if you have something that you'd want me to sing great and everyone was like uh, I'm writing some things now <laughs> I have like a program of 12 pieces and I think eight world premieres for this Carnegie Hall recital and kind of ranging from um, Baroque to the present. Um, but it's just a look at, you know, female composers and um, their major contribution, which unfortunately has been kind of totally ignored and for many, many years, you know, I love the Metropolitan Opera, always will love working there, but it is an abomination that, you know, over a century went by um, between programming works written by women. That's not... Okay. Amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, just kind of doing doing my little part in my corner of the world. How many gown changes will there be in that recital? Girl. Girl. That'll <laughs> <laughs> leave some element of surprise. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm actually, so I haven't told this to anyone yet, but I'm working with uh, Sammy Rattel, who's Billy Porter's stylist. Um, for What? <laughs> that is an OBS exclusive, everyone. Guys, <laughs> guys. So, yeah. Um, I need, I know it's played out. I know it's been done, but I'm going to need you to have one of the flat brim fedoras with the curtains that open just for like <laughs> a little fringe curtain on the front. That's all. Just that for me, a personal favorite for me. Let's see what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, did you want to, uh, before we say goodbye to Mr. James, Ambassador James, did you, was there something you wanted to ask him? Matt Cummings? Is he gone? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm here. I, you guys were on a delay for a little while, but I am back. <laughs> uh, 
have a dog now. I, well, I just want first of all, I wanted to thank oh, you for everyone. Pause for pause for Zach's dog. Oh, there is a, a precious baby minpin sitting in your lap. We're gonna need the name. He just hopped up here. Um, this is Sir Arthur Seymour Sullivan. Excellent, love that. Amazing. Uh-huh. Written by uh, you may know his work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead. This is the best. <laughs> Okay, uh, uh, but I'm I'm just curious to like with with such a varied resume and everything. Like, what is it about? What is it, what is it that you look for in a piece to excite you? Like, how, how do you determine what project you want to work on? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, to be honest, I've not had the luxury of of choosing that much in my career, but uh-huh. it started to I guess happen. Um, and um. I don't know. It's a similar question to like, what's your dream role? And for me, that answer is always going to be something new. And I, I just love more than anything being in a room with a composer and creating something new. There's something so special about that. And um, so that's what I'm looking for primarily. And, and to be honest, I would love to return to Broadway and do something. I, I honestly miss eight shows a week. It, it's spectacular and fun. And, um, but when when Broadway has come a knocking the few times that they have, you know, since I left um, in 2012, um, it's never been something that was so enticing that I was like, oh, yeah, I'll cancel my Rusalka to go do SpongeBob SquarePants. Like, no. Please never. Please never. <laughs> I will not be doing that. Like, okay. I don't know. Like, sophisticated, like, music that makes me feel emotions I didn't know I had, you know, and... Like Dvorak, are you kidding? Like, forget it. It's hmm. sickening. And so, um, yeah, I'm looking for for that really stuff. That's I have to say too. With some new works, there's this tendency to of for like shock value occasionally. Like I've been offered, um, or some a couple things have been dangled where I hear what the story is, and I'm kind of like, ah, I don't think I want to devote my heart to that darkness. Mm-hmm. That, you're producing just for shock value. Like that's not me also. Um, I like to live in a, in a, um, how can I say it? Like I am not an actor who likes to go through a negative experience just to feel those feelings. Like for mm. me, when I'm on stage at all times, like my character has to be doing what they think is best than having a positive experience, even if it brings about negative consequences. But um, I kind of have to live in a positive place at all times. Um, and I play villains all the time, like while doing that. And it's really gratifying and awesome. And I think that's why Billy Bud worked so well. It's because we had the, uh, we were allowed to do that and go there. Um, but yeah, so I guess when looking for, for a project, I, I want it to be grounded in like a big heart well, I want to put something out into the world because you can't have it until you name it. But somebody needs to write the opera of Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles and you should play Achilles. And if okay. you haven't read this book yet, it will it will destroy you. It is so beautiful. And it's about Achilles and his um, male lover, Patroclus. And uh, oh, wow. you are, you're definitely an Achilles. Oh, well, yeah. thanks. Because so, you look great like, <laughs> with all that armor and like cutting people up, you know, 300 style. And, like, <laughs> is, is that our first opera box score commission? Yeah, it should be. <laughs> yeah. 
checks out. Yeah. Yeah, actually, so a composer wrote me recently and, and we were, she was inquiring about the possibility of teaming up for a song cycle. And she said, you know, what is poetry that you'd like to sing or a story you'd like to sing? And I said exactly that. Like, honestly, as a, as a gay man, like, I haven't really had the opportunity that often to sing about something that is deeply personal to me in that way. Besides Billy, but like, that's the only time I would say I played a gay character and I wouldn't even, he doesn't identify as gay. Like there was no like gay or straight on that ship. Yeah. It was just men, you know? So and um, one thing that would be really nice is to play an actual like gay character. And I don't know, I do a Broadway solo show and like every song in it is like about some woman. And I'm just like, girl, can we move on? <laughs> it's great. It's a great show. I, music I love to sing, but you know, it's always like interesting. Yeah. You know, well, the time has yeah. come. Well, Ambassador Zachary James, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. This is probably our longest interview, and we're, we're going to keep every minute of it. So, listeners, I'm sorry that this episode is two hours long, but. Um, <laughs> but we know that you have time <laughs> yes. and that you're looking for content. Opera class, sports radio crash. This is Opera Box Score. What started in May 2019 as a slow-burning arts advocacy and independent journalism site, Zach Fickelstein's MiddleClassArtist.com has blown to a has blown up to a critical source of COVID crisis-related arts reporting. And as of March 2020, MiddleClassArtist.com has 100,000 hits. He's the voice of the people, he is. Oliver. Heard on Opera Box Score at the site's inception, tenor Zach Fickelstein used to write about bus the business side of singing, balancing budgets, taxes. Now he and a growing team of... The real glamour of the singing world. Yes. He and a growing team of contributors write about the classical musical world, classical music world, uh, how it's on fire. That was a great reading, Oliver. Um, so, Nailed it. Yeah, so we've been... Um, talking about middle-class artists for a few months now. And uh, we just want you guys, our listeners, to check it out, middleclassartists.com. What, what I think is so important about the work that Zach does and kind of what it's turned into is that, like, the the business of singing has been something... And when I say business, I mean, like, business with a capital B. The business of singing is something that isn't taught to you, it is kind of a survival of the fittest. If you're either smart enough and have enough context clues to just figure it out, you do it. Uh, if you don't, then there's a really good chance that you're not going to be successful in this industry because so much of this is about self-promotion, being self-made. Uh, and so the fact that he really digs in deep and, and makes it pretty transparent, like here's what's going on. This is how taxes are done. These are the things that you need to know. This is stuff that generations of singers should have had access to. We would have heard so many better voices if something like this was more transparent earlier on. Not just me being better about not knowing this at the beginning of my career. I promise. There are so many other things that need to be too. How do you build a durable, flexible, and successful classical arts career? What is happening in the classical music world right now? Who is paying their artists in the COVID era? Who is leaving them out in the cold, firing them by tweet? What is the classical music world going to look like when the COVID epidemic is over? And how do we get there? Go to middleclassartist.com. Let's do some spring training for your ears. Continuing Great. along with the plot of Albert Herring, we're now in Act Two of the opera, which again is in two scenes. And the second act begins with this great energy, this bustle uh, of 
the planning and the preparation for the May the May King celebration. May Day. And May Day celebration, yeah. And it has definitely this sort of like wedding planner like feeling to it. Uh, and Nancy is very very anxious. And then you get this very authoritative, you know, Florence Pike entrance. Uh, but it's really Sid at Sid's entrance, which once again injects calm into the scene. And he gives us this arioso description uh, of what's about to happen or what he sees happening around town. And, uh, you know, he's definitely very cynical. And in a way, he feels like he's giving his uh, testi- testimony on the office like he's Jim. So uh, let's hear, we're going to, today's excerpts are going to all come from the Stuart Bedford recording because we just find it to be a little bit easier to get through this if we're sticking with one. So once again, here is Gerald Finley uh, singing um, the little arioso of him describing the preparation for the making festival. So Gerald Finley and Benjamin Britten, for that matter, in this moment, just gives this a sense of ritual and just the way he uses the percussion and sort of like this, I don't know, Pasacalia-like feeling uh, in the accompaniment. It just all of a sudden just gives us a little breather in what is really this whole act is just very, very frenetic. Um, and then that, that calm, that serenity is disturbed when uh, Miss Wordsworth comes in with the children and they are hungry and they're distracted by the sight of all the food. And, you know, we learn of all these delicacies, which maybe American audiences back in the, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s might not have recognized all those things. But since we all watch the great British Bake Off and, you know, me, I watch mm-hmm. Jamie Oliver, mm-hmm. I do recognize mm-hmm. some of these, you know, treacle tart, cheesy straws, trifle Um So I think it's really delightful to get a little bit of, you know, English history culture english culture lesson through this liberal i think you want to call it english flavor oh with the (laughs) so then there's this rehearsal moment where um it sort of feels like uh the sound of music where miss wordsworth is trying to 
warm up the kids and help them remember what they're going to sing. And uh, you sang Miss Wordsworth, Ashley. Do you have anything to say about getting those kids to sing and the fun vocalises and solfege? I sure do. Uh, you know, it's funny. There are um, I've seen a couple of different versions of this, and and you know, in terms of how directors will stage this, you know, you can kind of do anything because it's just frenzy, both musically and dramatically. There's just so much frenetic energy and action happening on the stage. So as long as the kids are running around and Miss Wordsworth looks a little bit flustered, you're getting the job done. Um, but it's really fun because the little vocalises that happen can be really great moments for for the the actor playing Miss Wordsworth to really like use that kids. Or that's a moment when, you know, one of the kids runs off and she panics and starts to go after him. So there's really great ways to use what's already on the page note-wise and turn it into the action. Um, you know, one of the things that I really love about this, this scene and most of the scenes with Wordsworth and the kids, there's like, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people in, in at least the, the, at least the piece up to now. I don't feel like dramatically there's a lot of people that you can really root for. Everybody's got something about them that's a little bit annoying or frustrating or just flat out awful. Um, I mean, you laugh at it, but you're like, oh, God, these people. Um, this scene with the children and with Miss Wordsworth, it's like you just get to have a moment of joy that's not necessarily mocking anybody. It's just silly, hungry kids running around going crazy and their frantic teacher trying to corral them and have just a really fun, happy music rehearsal, you know, so it's, it's nice to have something that's a little bit more relatable. Uh, and you know, it's, it's really funny because their fun fact is, um, one of the acting choices that I took when I played Miss Wordsworth, um, was I, I made her a little bit like Rose Nyland from the Golden Girls. Um, <laughs> because the thing about Rose is like, yes, we remember Rose as like being sort of absent-minded and, and having some really interesting stories about, you know, St. Olaf or what have you, but she is at her core so sweet and good-natured and she just wants to get things done. Even amidst the chaos, she tends to just like do the best that she can. And so there were some some really fun times where I got to just be Rose in the in the midst of trying to rehearse children among their, you know, eye jammings of the treacle tarts. So let's go to the next clip. Uh, so we have this rehearsal happening and then um, Florence, I mean, everybody, all the guests arrive and we actually get this moment where, you know, the children get to sing their little, you know, whatever, salute their fanfare. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, ode. Uh, it's it's very British. I'm sure there's a word. British music has have those words for what this music would be. Welcome song, probably, for the making uh, here's, um, once again, the Stuart Bedford, Bedford recording on the Naxos label. Thank you. 
I don't know. I feel like that moment is so great for um, Lady Billows, who once again in this recording is sung by uh, Josephine Barstow. Uh, Josephine Barstow, yeah. And the vicar is sung by uh, Peter Savage. And we get the recall of the vicar's Arioso from the first act. And Lady Billows has this really lovely line. It's just one line in her whole role that gives her a sense of humanity. She says, is this the town which I have cherished and loved? And she's just, up to this point, she's having like a great day and she's just very happy. And, you know, it's really sweet that she has a sentimental moment and she, this is what she loves. She loves children behaving. She loves people dressed up nicely. (laughs) She loves, you know, celebrating virginity. (laughs) I mean, don't we all, Oliver? Don't those we are all, all important qualities? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the children sing this thing, and I don't know. It reminds me. I mean, there's so much children in music of Britain. Um, we could talk yeah. about the operas. We could talk about the anthems, Matt. Yeah, uh, children in music—a big hallmark for Britain, um, both in terms of he wrote un- he wrote a lot of anthems and 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 pieces for children's choir alone that are quite challenging, like among the most, among the more challenging children's repertoire that's out there. And they, the children also feature prominently in works of his, like the war requiem has a children's chorus. Midsummer night's dream has a children's chorus where they play the fairies. It, uh, and four of them have solo lines as well as the, the whole chorus overall. Um, and turn someone who was, well. yeah. I, uh, and someone who was a very prominent, uh, treble who sang with Britain a lot is Michael Crawford, the original Phantom of the Opera. I learned while doing what? research for this segment. He was a he was on the short list uh, to originate the role of Miles and did originate a role in Noya's Flood. Uh, and Noya's Flood's actually a really good example of just this tradition of children's choral music in England that's much stronger than anything that we have over here. Uh, and Britain wrote this children's opera, Noah's Flood, that, that tells the story, the biblical story of Noah to uh, classical music, that, but classical music that's a lot more approachable and performable by children. So after that children's chorus, uh, each of the characters, or most of the characters, you know, say nice things to Miss Wordworth, and they, they say it all at the exact same time. So you can't really suss out what they're saying, but they're trying to give her comments. Like, oh, you know, did you write that? Or like, oh, they sounded great. And it's one of those things where I don't understand British humor, but I know I have lots of friends who do. And I wish I had somebody who really understood Britishisms to help me parse out, you know, what they're actually saying. Like, what do you say when you want to compliment somebody but not compliment them? I'm sure this libretto <laughs> has a bunch of that. And uh, Sid is the only person who is actually, you know, authentic. And he says, um, crikey, <laughs> what an awful noise. But uh, this is also a setup for everybody, you know, uh, get, getting ready for Lady Billows to make her speech. And she starts this speech, you know, I'm full of happiness, you know, to proclaim what a great day it is. But really quickly, it devolves into her, you know, um, on her uh, soapbox, you know, preaching about uh, the virtue of virginity and not drinking and stuff like that. So let's hear a little bit of Josephine Barstow. Uh, with her I'm Full of Happiness speech.
So after Lady Bills's monologue, uh, we once again get, just like in the first act, these little character sketches, and everybody gives their own little speech, uh, either to thank Lady Bills or to introduce or to toast uh, Albert Herring. And um, the mayor is the first one to go. He's a tenor. And this one definitely feels like it's in a Gilbert and Sullivan pattern mode, like I'm the very model of a modern major general. And that leads to Miss Wordsworth's, and it seems like she's really well prepared for her speech. And it feels like a, a couplet from an opera comique. Uh, it could be like Feline, like Je suis Titania from Mignon, or even the harp uh, entrance of Juliet in Gounod's Romeo and Juliet, that little arioso that nobody ever excerpts for auditions, but they should because it's perfect. It's just the right length. You know what I'm talking about if you like that opera. And then Superintendent Bud gives his little speech, which is he's a bass and his is blustery. And you can definitely hear the reference to like Baroque music with a very pronounced walking bass line. Mm. And it almost even feels like a character like Osmin in Abduction with Raleigh. It was like really, really blustery. And everything he says is always so drawn out and slow, so much slower than everyone else too. There's, there's that biting British humor of just the, their personalities. And so uh, everybody is like given their speech and is like so ready to eat. But all that's left to happen is for Albert to make his speech. And this is the moment like the, you know, this opera doesn't really have a lot of drama. But this, if there's a moment of drama in the show, it's this moment. It's like the public speaking moment mm-hmm. for Albert Herring. And um, yeah, it reminds me of, I don't know, like the trial of Billy Budd. I don't know, Matt, have you thought about what this moment sounds like to you? Yeah, it, it does feel like the part of, the part of Billy Budd where uh, in that instance, like he's so overcome with rage and he has a stutter and he can't seem to overcome it. Uh, and, and there's there's all and that's a really common theme of Britain operas also is like having these obstacles that are something about your personality, wink wink, that you right. just like can't quite overcome. And for Albert, it's his like shyness and his retiring nature, where you, we really see it like biting him in the in the rear. It is really interesting to see how um, obviously uh, this is a, a comedy in a string of a lot of rather depressing operas by Benjamin Britten, I would say. Um, but you still have, um, uh, he, ha- he has all this fixation of like a specific kind of character he wants to put out there in the form of Albert Herring, in the form of Billy Budd, in the form of... Um, uh, uh, I mean, Peter Grimes, even to an extent. Peter Grimes, yeah, it's absolutely. really it's really warped, but that that loner energy. Uh, exactly, we, we're seeing like the other side of the coin here. The humorous Harry. side, yeah. The 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 moments where that that awkwardness is is funny, um, but it, you put them all together, and I think you create sort of one Britain super character who I kind of suspect is Britain. Do you know what I mean? Um, but uh, that's all up to speculation. I don't know him, uh, but uh, th- this is very much in that vein. Well, let's hear a little bit of this scene uh, where the the party attendees are trying to get Albert to make his speech. It's just a life.
thank you very much. So that makes me think of so much. I mean, first of all, that, you know, the instrumental feels very film score and what horrifying chords get stacked up there in, that, in the strings that uh, just feel so eerie and uneasy. I, don't, I mean, I don't understand theory well enough to tell you what those chords are, but they're not chords that give you any sense of ease as you hear them being stacked up. And then the way they all react, um, you know, reminds me of, you know, that, that scene in Peter Grimes, the, the chorus of Peter Grimes. But it also reminds me in a way of the end of the um, Olympia act of Tales of Hoffman, where the crowd just like, you know, Hoffman finds Olympia all busted up in little pieces. And, and the crowd is sort of just in a completely different, he's traumatized and they're just really overexcited and maybe even delighted about what's happening. And that to me is like very horrifying. Um but yeah, Matt. Very grotesque. Yes, I know, Matt. You love that Peter Grimes chorus scene um, where they're gonna lynch. Oh, him. it it gives me chills. The it's first so time good. I ever heard it, just like over my entire body. Mm. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically the end of the first scene of that act. I mean, it becomes very clear that uh, Sid and Nancy having spiked. You skipped the- over the the most uh, the most iconic part. Yeah, you skipped over the the quotation. What quotation? Yeah. So uh, obviously Albert has trouble giving the speech. Mm. So in order to uh, encourage him uh, to kind of have fun at this party, I, I forget who it is. Uh, someone slips rum into his lemonade. Yes, yes. Sid. Oh, Sid, the, you're Sid and Nancy. The Tristan chord. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Well, it's one of those things I, I didn't want to point it out because, you know, when he drinks it, obviously it's the Tristan chord because, you know, drinking the love potion, very funny. Uh, but it's it's all part of like this big sort of pastiche melange quotations mm-hmm. um, that really uh, that really drive this work. Um, and it really reminds me of, uh, of uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, who was actually quite good friends with Britain uh, in this time period. Uh, even though stylistically, they, uh, in terms of the, the sound, they don't sound really much alike. But in terms of a lot of like the little things that they use, what they find funny, what they find uh, uh, yeah. interesting, they use a lot of the same techniques. Um, and it's, it's kind of strange to kind of think of them the same uh, part for me, but they really are similar. Well, I'm sorry to not that, and, but that gives you something to listen for. Go on, Matt. But but what's funny about it is there are so many allusions and quotations in the scores we've talked about, but the one that he really wants you to get is this Tristan court. Oh, it happens yeah. more than once, and it is Britain wants you to know how clever he is with, right. with that little well, with that little wasn't mark. Clever enough to remember it, so he didn't get me to get it. So because I thought it was such a bog, you know, that's why. Um, but yeah, so it's clear that Albert is getting drunk throughout this process, and you know when you are nervous and when you haven't eaten. And you drink alcohol, it goes right to your system, I promise you. And, uh, yeah, and it ends with him having hiccups in the middle of his speech, and then everybody is eating in the end. And this truly feels like the uh, feast scene in Cenerentola and any number of operas that have feast scenes where, you know, everybody's just waiting to eat, and once eating happens, the music just becomes very, you know, celebrative and chaotic and... um, 
It's a big romp, and it's it's totally hilarious. And then that scene ends, and we find Albert alone back at the grocery store. Um, and here is his first monologue. He has two arias, basically, in this scene. And in the first one, he's definitely rebelling against this event, and he is thinking about Nancy, and he thinks that maybe she might like him. Uh, and maybe he's, you know, recalling, you know, what he saw earlier uh, when Sid and Nancy were, you know, in that sort of seduction moment. And uh, yeah, here is Albert thinking to himself about, um, you know, being the prodigal son and being as clean as a whistle, uh, sound as a drum from his coronation. It's really adorable. again i'll reiterate that this music for albert herring the character is the most britain of any of the characters all the other characters seem to relate to other styles of music and uh yeah this is Al- this is britain the og when he whenever albert is by himself so interested in nancy into the scene and they think that they're alone and uh they are about to get it on and once again albert is Overhearing this, and uh, there's repetition uh, of some of the, like the whistling, and some of the other like you know, like like Matt was saying, the the harmonies that are very intimate between Sid and Nancy, and this is the type of stuff that makes me feel very smart when I recognize these things in. Britain operas, especially this opera. Obviously, I'm not smart enough because I didn't recognize that Tristan chord. But here is uh, Anne Taylor as Nancy and Joe Finley as Sid. Oh, <laughs> 
That duet is so sexy. Yeah. So after Albert, oh, it's so good. Um, it feels like he understands something new, um, which is the whole reason why he gets to sing another aria. I think he understands now that Al- that Nancy pities him. It's not that she was attracted to him, and not that she that you know he recognized that kindness as something more than kindness. No, she was really she feels bad for him, and that just sparks off this shame. And Albert Herring, which is really his, you know, impetus to do what he does, which is to, you know, use his money, his winnings to go. And it's not clear where he goes. It's never explained. But maybe to um, a whorehouse? I don't know exactly what... I was going to say Burning Man, but okay. Whorehouse could work. And um, there's all sorts of, you know, if you understand the geography of this small town, if you understand maybe um, like the little signals, the the secret coded uh, signals that gay men back in this era um, gave each other. Apparently there's some coded... The evening botany. Yeah, there's some coded language and there's, there's, if you look at the streets that are named in the libretto or there are some little clues here and there that could be like, oh, those initials are the same initials of the street where gay men congregated in the alley or like whatever. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's also sorts of scholarly work that's done on just how gay is Albert Herring. But uh, what's more easy to grapple onto is the sort of sexual, okay. sexual awakening that happens in this moment for, for Albert Herring. And it reminds me a little bit of the hormone monster in um, Big Mouth, which is a really great cartoon by Nick Kroll, which I didn't think I was going to like, but I ended up loving it. Ashley, do you watch Big Mouth? I do. Um, And I I thought it was absolutely hilarious when you brought up this comparison because I was like, that is so deeply astute and so wonderful. And for my friend Oliver to bring in something that is so part of like a very underground side zeitgeist of now and comparing it to Albert Herring, I was like, yes, this is, this is why we were. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and, and the thing about, I, I call these hormone monsters when I'm trying to explain this, because I am often trying to evangelize for big mouth and how funny and charming and sweet and gross and all of these wonderful things it is, but it's, it's such a lovely human cartoon. And I start talking about these hormone monsters and the way that I describe them are over-sexualized shoulder angels. And they almost have the, almost always, <laughs> worst advice like not good advice they are tapping into like the most uh the most immature and irrational of your feelings and validating them and it's like yes you should behave so horribly in the middle of a grocery store just because you're upset the world owes you you know it's it's stuff like that and i think you're right that switch that flips within albert he he doesn't have nick kroll or maya rudolph on his shoulder but i definitely could see a new production of this with a nick kroll or maya rudolph on it (laughs) Well, here is just that moment where it seems like the hormone monster gives uh, Albert Herring an idea of what to do with his with his winnings, with his twenty five sovereigns, twenty five sovereigns. The tide will turn the sun will- 
So he sings in that little, actually quite melodic arioso. But when, when shall I dare and dare again? How shall I screw my courage up to do what must be done by everyone? The tide will turn, the sun will set while I stand here and hesitate. And we have to remember that this opera was written in 1946. Um, and, you know, I'm always trying to find the gay in every opera. But, you know, here we do have an opera where the composer was gay and had a gay lover and Britain never really spoke publicly about his sexuality, but it was very obvious to their circle of friends and to the circle of musicians that they were in a, you know, in a same-sex relationship. And, you know, there was many pictures that were out there that were circulating, and um, there maybe couldn't have been a bigger clue to what was happening between them than Britain's first canticle, My Beloved is Mine and I Am His, which he wrote explicitly for Peter Pears in 19. 19- 47. So am I saying that Albert Hanger was gay? I don't know. It's not really explicitly in the libretto, but that Albert Herring feels like there's something that he needs to do, something that he needs to realize and act on, definitely fits very well into, you know, the theme of, of sexual oppression and sexual awakening, um, especially in a time when you couldn't really talk about it and you could be, you know, criminalized. It was a crime, you know to act on these things. And in some places it still is. But that's why Albert Herring is going to go to Burning Man, so he can find himself. (laughs) (laughs) Any any closing thoughts about uh, Act 2 of Albert Herring before we wrap this one up? Well, I I think that the... A lot of it is really just sort of a, a deepening into everything that's been set up by Act 1. Um, when you listen to Act One, it feels like a comedy pretty much straight through. If you listen to Act Two, there's there's some really personal moments, uh, especially with Albert Herring. This this is the moment where Albert Herring begins to sort of change from this buffoon into, as you say, Benjamin Britten, who's going through these things and finding himself. Uh, and it's really kind of um, extraordinarily beautiful in a way that you would not expect a silly co- a comedy about a bunch of English country bumpkins to be. I just want to shout out to um, stage director Marcus Shields, who went to Northwestern many years ago and studied as a tenor. And he was the Albert Herring in the university production. And boy, was he so beautiful in that white suit. That was... That was major feelings for me, seeing him sing this role. So, <laughs> Oliver's having his own awakening right now. Uh, yes, yes. From 2011. Now we get to the point of how I we're doing Albert Harris. <laughs> All right, so that wraps it up for this spring training for your ears. We'll finish this up next week. One Albert.
And before I let Oliver and the team wrap up this show, once again, Opera in the Time of Corona, let us know what your life is like right now. What stories are we missing on our show? What's been an unexpected bright spot for you? What's been lost for good? How has your work been affected by COVID-19? Get your voice on our show. Record yourself and send the MP3 or the WAV file to operaboxscore at gmail.com. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Met announced today that it will host an at-home gala featuring more than 40 artists, including stars like Anna Netrebko, Jonas Kaufman, and Renee Fleming performing from their homes. The three-hour event will be co-hosted by Pierre Gelb and Yannick Nuzay-Sagan and will stream from the Met's website at 1 p.m. on Saturday, April 25th, and will remain on the site until the following Sunday evening. Placido Domingo has been discharged from the hospital after his coronavirus treatment and is now in in in-home care. In a statement on Twitter in three languages, the canceled baritone and conductor explained that he was fortunate to get an early diagnosis, thanking his fans for their sympathy and advising them to stay at home. Quédense en casa, restare a casa. In a roundtable discussion hosted by the New York Times, bioethicist and professor of healthcare management Zeke Emanuel says he has, quote, no idea how promoters who are rescheduling arts and music events for later this year, quote, think that's a plausible possibility. Emanuel predicts concerts and festivals will not return until autumn 2021, adding, quote, I think those things will be the last to return. Last Tuesday, more than 250 vocalists, instrumentalists, and noise practitioners and other artists worldwide interacted with each other via Zoom to perform Full Pink Moon, an opera by composer Pauline Oliveros. The April 7th event streamed live on the Opera Povera website, Facebook Live, YouTube, and Twitch, asked viewers to consider donating to relief funds for musicians affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. In the Philadelphia Inquirer, classical music critic and culture reporter Peter Dobrin examined the post-COVID landscape and how the currently banned assembly of people prevents the art that we love and why getting together after all of this is over matters. Quote, regardless of what music means, it is always an act of creation. It is exactly the silencing rebuttal to nihilism we need to hear now. It is the how and the why of keeping on. In the flurry of Don't Rush challenges, some of OBS's favorite lady divas got in on the action. In their best double-speed quick-change finest, we see Janae Bridges, Karen Slack, Rayanne Bryce-Davis, Brandy Sutton, Nicole Lane, Janai Orman, Brianna Hunter, Julia Bullock, and Eileen Perez go from house clothes and scores to stage-ready gowns. Amazing job, ladies! Friend of the show, Elena Villalon stars as Susanna in the Houston Grand Opera Studio Artists and Alumni's Virtual Marriage of Figaro Finale. The video featuring 11 singers and a pianist all in their own homes was edited by baritone Ryan McKinney, who said, quote, it was a fun and challenging project, and I think hints at some interesting possibilities while we wait to be able to gather again in person. Hashtag keep the music going. 
Friend of the show, Zach Finkelstein, has updated his unsung Heroes of COVID-19 list and the new Heroes of COVID-19, which as of April 8th now catalogs 179 presenters and organizations who have tried to do right by their artists. Check out the new list at middleclassartist.com. Also on Middle Class Artists this week, today I gave up New York City. The tale of rising American-based Tom McNichols surrendering. On Facebook, McNichols adds, Quote, my only immediate advice, all artists, pivot fast but consciously. Explore and learn new skills of interest and relevance. We are not quitting our arts, though we are definitely in a fight to see them come back to what was the norm. All this new sharing will change the landscape as we knew it, and no one knows what the future holds. Tom McNichols was a 40-year-old base woodworker and successful real estate agent in New York City. Now Tom is the sole proprietor of thewoodlab.com. The Jensen Foundation Vocal Competition, due to the social distancing measures of the COVID-19 crisis, canceled its flagship competition last week. The foundation committed to sending $47,000 in prize fees to the 235 singers who applied, equally split into $200 for every single applicant. In an email to their constituents, Long Beach Opera, full transparency, friend of the show, has announced the cancellation of the remainder of their current season, scrapping performances of Billy the Kid and Frida, but planning to bump the site-specific presentation of the Lighthouse at the Aquarium of the Pacific to an unannounced date next season. The 2020-2021 four-opera season at Long Beach is curated by MacArthur Genius Grant winner Yuval Sharon. Similarly, friend of the show, we're going to go back up because my whole thing just jumped. Sorry. Similarly, friend of the show, Andrew Jorgensen of Opera Theater of St. Louis, used Facebook video to share the sad news of the cancellation of their 2020 season. You can watch that by searching at Opera Theater. That's theater spelled R-E, not E-R, on Facebook. At least for now, Austria's Regenz Festival, Festival is a go for July and August. From their leadership, quote, as things stand at present, the Brigades Festival should go ahead as planned from July 22nd to August 23rd. And last year's production, Rigoletto, is returning for its second run on the lake stage. Considerably less preparation is needed than for a new production. Exit stage right. Russian composer Dmitry Smirnov has passed away on April 9th due to the coronavirus. Smirnov, who grew up in a family of opera singers, penned two operas based on texts from William Blake titled Tyriel and Thel, which premiered just months apart from each other in 1989. James Christopher Edwards II, renowned educator, musical director, baritone, and Korean War veteran, has died at the age of 85. Among his many accomplishments, it was the 1970 production of Porgy and Bess at Charleston's Gaillard Municipal Auditorium, in which Edwards directed the choir and sang in the cast, that made for a tremendous impact on the city's arts community and received national attention for doing so. Judy Drucker, a South Florida impresario who for decades brought stars of the concert, music, opera, and dance to Miami, elevating the city's cultural scene with inexhaustible enthusiasm and self-confidence, died on March 30th due to the complications of Alzheimer's disease. She was 91. And on this day, in April 13, 1946, we have the birth of Welsh mezzo-soprano Della Jones, 1941, Welsh soprano Dame Margaret Price, 1931, Italian soprano Anita Cerquetti, 1906, Romanian bass Andre Corre was born, 1892, Australian soprano Gladys Moncrief, in 1912, it was the first performance of Buzoni's Die Blautwall in Hamburg, in 1742, the Dublin version of Handel's Messiah received its first performance, and way going back before this birthday, Pierre Gélois, the French haute contre of created roles, some in travesti, by the likes of Rameau, Lully, and Compro, 
Oh, here we go. Hippolyta was born in France in 1713. Just missed the first performance of Ligeti's Le Grand Macabre, April 12th, 1978, in Stockholm. Sorry, Weston. And that is your two-minute drill. Della Jones singing the finale from Cenerentola. And it's my understanding that that ornament she does after one of those long scales is one that Rossini actually wrote. And very few people, if anybody, have ever recorded it. And it was really tricky. And you can't tell that it's tricky, but if you listen to the entire recording, you can tell that it, it was not worth the risk. Matt, did you, did wow. you said you heard somebody do it before? Fight me on that one. Yeah, I so I have never heard that Della Jones recording before, but I really think I've heard that ornament either from like I want to say a Jennifer Larmore recording or uh, Joyce Dinanato. Maybe maybe if they recorded the aria separate from their full sets, you might not have yeah. stumbled upon it before. Well, quickly, uh, and it also wouldn't be quite as risky to try to do at the end of four hours of Rossini singing. Quickly, Margaret okay. Price and Anita Cerchetti have incredible recordings and really important careers, but we don't have time to talk about that today. And we also don't have time to talk about Le Grand Macabre because it was April 12th that uh, that thing had its first performance. So it doesn't. So we're moving on because, we're moving yeah. On. But I, will say, I already celebrated Le Grand Macabre Day instead of Easter, so we're fine. <laughs> okay. um, the Tom McNichol story on Middle Class Artist broke my heart. Uh, it really does seem to be like the perfect encapsulation of what many people are going through. You go to New York, you have a success, you have a side hustle just in case, and then your singing career and your side hustle both collapse because of COVID, and you decide, that's it, I'm leaving New York, I'm quitting, and you go to your third side hustle, which is... for. Tom McNichols' case, thewoodlab.com. He's a woodworker in addition to being a singer and a real estate agent. Bless his heart. Buy yourself a nice chair. Which I love. I I love. I mean, I I am frustrated and heartbroken that this has been his experience. It's also completely unsurprising and the tale of so many people that I know personally. But yeah, honey, go work with that wood. It's got to feel more satisfying than any (laughs) of the modern hustle. I personally would love to enjoy his wood. Um, so, Oliver. Oh, Oliver. The, We're going to have to delete this recording no, and start no, no, again. No, no. Um, the Houston Grand, <laughs> Houston Grand Opera um, Marriage of Figaro finale was really sweet. Ryan McKinney cut and pasted together what, 11 different singers uh, in yeah, staged at home, sung at home, sinking to the piano track. Uh, I thought of all the stuff that's out there uh, of, you know, a homemade opera. This is one of the best. So you can find that mm. at Houston Grand Opera. You can look for YouTube, Houston Grand Opera Studio Artists, Marriage of Figaro. It should come up pretty quickly. We also got- And he's got a real talent for editing, too. Yeah. Like, there are some clever cuts in there to make it look like two people are in the same room. Yeah, I don't have that skill, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> um, the at-home gala of the Met is going to have 
the Trepco apparently and Kaufman and Fleming. Um, and I don't know how that's going to be. I mean, are they going to be with syncing to Yannick Nizé-Sagan's piano track or are they each going to have like karaoke tracks accompanying them? I have no idea. I just can't imagine all those singers have it together enough to perform from home. Some of them might be great. Maybe Jonas I, I mean, I really... I mean, I really don't know necessarily like what it's going to be like musically, but I will be tuning in just to try to get a, a, a peek inside their houses. Yes. Oh, and I hope sure. that some of them choose to do a full house tour because there oh, is no way that Renee Fleming has an ugly house. This is the opportunity for MTV's Cribs colon opera edition. Like that <laughs> to happen. I want to see Jonas's bathroom. I want to see Anna's salon, that room that she has that she doesn't know what to do with. I need to see these things. Yes, I want to see at least three shows, of those. Actually, that's what I always like to start. When I go to people's houses, I read their books. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, people, I'm actually, whenever my parents come to my house, I have to hide certain books. So um, Domingo <laughs> is doing better, apparently. Um, it's too bad that we can't get Michael Rice on the line just to read any statement that Domingo ever gives because he's really good at his Domingo impersonation. The, um, go on, Weston. In all three languages, oh, he would have yes, had to do it. Languages. So it's really a, it's really a <laughs> blessing for him. I did if not, only we had convinced him to stay home sooner. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not watch the full Pink Moon. Anybody try to catch that? I tried to. I want to say we were uh, recording the uh, 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 the earlier interview this episode uh, when it was yeah. happening. Yeah, I really wanted to, but um, I, I, I'm always fascinated by Pauline Olivero. She always does that kind of thing where it's sort of, you know, it's called deep listening is what she calls it when everyone kind of gets in a room and sort of improvises something based on a selection of rules. Her scores are really interesting. They're just paragraphs yeah, in the description. I did a piece of hers one time, and the whole score was the instructions were to hold a note until the desire to change notes goes away. <laughs> it's and so then good. change notes. Um, one, yeah, of the, one of the best stories of the week has been this Jensen Foundation deciding to divide up the money. We should have all applied. Yeah, man. We would have been rolling in it right now. $200. Could really use 200 it for my bean. <laughs> I'm actually, I ran out it's, of cheese today. That's, that's a tragedy. I've got to go to the store this week, so wish me luck. You need that two hundred dollars for cheese, Oliver. I'm just if you're doing it like, right. Yes, yeah. Good ass cheese. <laughs> um, you had something to say about the uh, Bregenz Festival, Weston? Oh yeah, it was just uh, you know, this is one of those stories where it's like um, I get it. We're all going through the stages of grief, grief right now, and some of us are stuck on denial. And the Bregenz Festival, I think, is uh, in that stage. Although maybe the logic is because they're doing it all in a lake, they can just put their singers into little lifeboats and sail them six feet apart. You're good to go. Um, But I don't think it's going to happen this year. Well, it's been a long episode, guys. Is there? Oh, the Don't Rush Challenge. I mean, there's so many of those things right now. I can't even catalog all (laughs) of them. But this is one of the first ones that I saw. And I just feel like I want to celebrate being a black woman. I wish I was sometimes. (laughs) Somewhere deep inside. Yeah. And you're, you'll be like the movie Big. Like, you'll put some money in a machine with a fortune teller on the inside, and then you will, like, wake up as, you know, Janae Bridges and see the new movie that we put together but don't produce. No, I mean, this, the thing that I liked about this one is, like, these Don't Rush challenges, they're everywhere. You can't, like, you know, metaphorically swing a dead cat across the internet without hitting, like, five of them. And <laughs> the thing that I love about this one is, like, 
because this was our community, these are people that we're fans of, that we're friends of. And, and seeing that, I don't know if you guys took any notice to the different scores that were being used. By yeah. The, the, the breadth and the depth of the scores was really impressive. I just had this like moment of pride where I was like, these are my people. And when I say my people, I don't mean like necessarily culturally speaking. I mean, like, these are my community. These are singers. This is like, mm. like, it's, it's a really special inside joke club that we all get to be a part of. And it was, yeah, you're right, Oliver. It was, it was just delightful. It's going to be hard for you guys to find this one if you are not a Facebook user. But if you are a Facebook user, uh, go to um, Janai Bridges' Janae Bridges's uh, personal page. I mean, a uh, professional page. I think it's there. Uh, it's in her videos. Um, and if not, just look for the hashtag "Don't Rush Challenge." I think it's just "Don't Rush Challenge," right? Um, and then, yeah. you know, put in one of their names, Janai Brugger, Janae Bridges, Karen Slack. Somebody's going to have it in a uh, public way because it's been shared many, many times. Um, there was another one um, that wasn't a don't challenge, but it was it was uh, African-American male opera stars that were um, covering a Hezekiah Walker song on Good Friday. Did you guys see that where they played when, instruments? Yeah, and Morris things? Robinson and our my boyfriend, Solomon Howard. Yeah. And uh, uh, Solomon. I know. Ugh. And um, <laughs> Larry Brownlee was in that one. Um, yeah, that was yeah. good. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Hey, how fantastic was that to hear Ashley doing the two-minute drill? Loved it. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. Creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our Zoom guest, Zachary James. For Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrove, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with your low voice or your high voice. We're back with an all-new podcast next Tuesday, April 21st. More opera news, more hot takes, more physical distancing. Can't we just all agree that social distancing is a dreadful phrase? Join us then.